0: Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the fourth season of the Bird Hugger podcast. I hope you're all doing well. I'm sure by now you've noticed that daylight lasts a few minutes longer each day. What that always means for me is that spring is on its way back and will be here before you know it. Those of you who watched our live broadcast on Facebook already know we are located right now in the Florida Everglades. It is 80 degrees and sunny here today. We are in the 10,000 Islands region, an extremely remote area. The only people you see this far from civilization are the diehard fishermen, and bird watchers like us, of course. Many people refer to the Everglades as a giant swamp, but it is really a river of grass. This river is in constant flux, moving gently all the way to Florida Bay and emptying out in the ocean. The Everglades covers roughly 1.5 million acres and was once close to 5 million acres before human development. The area is home to several endangered species. This includes the wood stork, the snail kite, and the Florida panther. These animals are struggling to survive in an area that is continually impacted by human development. However, there is a big fight being conducted by several state agencies and conservation groups to protect and restore what is left of the Everglades, one of the rarest and most fragile ecosystems on the planet. Today, we'll be exploring what it takes to grow native plants in Florida. Stay tuned. There's more to come. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Did you know that 1,000 people move to Florida every single day? What is it like to be a transplant from another region, especially if you are a native gardener? Today we are talking with Ginny Steibolt. Ginny is the author of the book Adventures of a Transplanted Gardener. This book is an essential resource for anyone retiring to Florida or for the snowbird with a winter home in Florida. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Ginny Steibolt to the program. Ginny, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Catherine. It's great to have you back. You always seem to be writing books.
2: <laughs> yes, I, my 18-year-old self would have been surprised that I would have ended up being a writer if, when I retired.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's wonderful, and you've got this great brand-new book, Adventures of a Transplanted Gardener. The great thing about your books is that you have lived these experiences as a gardener. One of the problems with gardening book publishing is sometimes you read a gardening book and you think, oh my God, has this person even dealt with this particular problem in the garden? Yeah. Your knowledge is hard (laughs) won. You've lived through all of it.
2: Yeah, it's been an interesting process. I do have a degree in botany, advanced degree in botany, but that doesn't mean that I know what I'm doing in the garden. When we moved to Florida, I was surprised by how different it was. We'd lived in Maryland before and New England before that. So the standard gardening books were fine and they applied to us in the temperate zones. But here in Florida, we've got a seven-month dry season and a five-month wet season in addition to eight different planting zones. So it's a huge state garden-wise. But Things are so different here. So what I tried to do in this book is to give people a way of shortcutting to becoming successful. So learning by my mistakes, they can skip those mistakes and make their own. (laughs) And one of the things that happens when people move to Florida, and a lot of times it's like us, we're retired and we move to Florida, is that they then try to make their gardens in Florida look like the gardens where they came from. Like I planted tulips because I wanted to have a tulip bed like I had in Maryland, but tulips don't work here because the soil doesn't stay cold enough in the winter. So in being able to garden for your local climate makes a big difference. But when I joined the Native Plant Society here in Florida, my whole gardening experience and my whole gardening viewpoint changed to not what could I grow in Florida, but what belongs here. And if we extrapolate this into building habitat for birds and pollinators, then we find that if you recreate a facsimile of the real Florida with native plants and groupings with layers of up to the trees and everything that the birds and the pollinators and the bats and the other creatures that may be lacking habitat will then have some place to live.
1: Now, in your book, you mentioned that a 1,000 people move to Florida every single day. That's just an astonishing number.
2: It is. So I think the market for this book will be good. The thing about writing a book for University Press of Florida, or actually probably any university presses, is these are peer-reviewed books, and that means that At least two people are paid by the publisher to read the book, find mistakes, make suggestions for making it better, and that adds several months to creating a book when you have it peer-reviewed. So I had two peer reviewers, and I don't know who they were. They are anonymous sometimes. And both of them thought that I should spend more time on the introduction to Florida. Because my first chapter was, okay, so if you start in Pensacola, which is at the end of the panhandle, and you drive all the way to Key West, which is the end of the Keys, it would take you 14 hours if you didn't stop but you would want to stop because there's so many interesting things to see and experience in florida and one of the reasons to include this introduction and i was happy to make it longer and expand upon it is that if you learn about the parks and what is in there and you visit the springs and you experience the real Florida then you will have that to inform your gardening so in your own yard and in your own community the schoolyards and your community properties and everything like that then if you are familiar with the real Florida then you can simulate that
1: in your own neighborhood So tell our listeners now, what is the real Florida? Yeah.
2: Well, Florida is weird because even 500 years ago, when the Spaniards first got here, the Europeans immediately started bringing their own plants, but it was named La Florida by Ponce de Leon because it was so beautiful. But if it was so beautiful, why did they bring all those European plants? But the real Florida is one that is planted in a way or, you know, the native habitat. And that's why the Native Plant Society plays such a big role in Florida. We have 37 chapters around Florida, and it's a very interesting group. And then there is also the florida native nursery group that then they work together so that they are selling native plants so there's a whole network of nurseries and wholesalers and retailers that sell native plants because if you go into a big box store or typical garden centers what you're going to find there is Plants that are not from Florida, plants that are from other places, and that, you know, oftentimes you see these seasonal plantings, and so every three months you put in a bunch of petunias and stuff like that, and then when they peter out, then you plant and you dig them up and plant something else. And so you have this endless cycle of plants that don't belong here, and you're trying to make them work, but, you know, it's disruptive to the soil, it doesn't really help the birds or the pollinators because these are flowers that don't belong here so the real florida is one that's filled with natives
1: now apparently the seasons in florida are really different from the northeast or mid-atlantic states you mentioned in the book there are six killing frosts during the winter in north florida
2: yeah but in between that it could be 80 degrees and so that's why we can't grow tulips because the soil doesn't stay cold enough even if you simulate a winter and put the tulips in the refrigerator for six weeks and you don't plant them until after Christmas, you still don't get a very good production because it's just not cold enough. I know a guy in Jacksonville who has an asparagus bed and for 6 weeks in the winter he gets ice from the local fish market puts on on his asparagus bed so he can simulate winter. <laughs> That's too much work for me but <laughs> it is a situation where it's different but wherever you live simulating what the native habitat is is extremely important. And I think that Doug Tallamy has made big inroads on that, you know, and he's got his homegrown national park and he's urging people to take out at least half of their lawn and then registering their property to be part of the homegrown native park and national park. So instead of 40 million acres of lawn that will have a 20 million acre yard by yard, national park that's filled with natives
1: now can you explain how florida's topography dictates pretty much what will survive in a garden
2: well there's not much topography here (laughs) the (laughs) highest point is about 300 feet above sea level our house here in northeast florida we're 32 feet above sea level so we're pretty high so we're pretty flat actually when you go to florida and if you have been to florida it sort of feels like you're on a different planet because things change i mean you you come down through jacksonville and you go into the peninsula of florida and it just feels different and if you look at the ancient geology of florida <laughs> we are a piece of africa that when the continents finally split apart it's a little piece of africa that attached to the north american plate and that is what we are so we are a different (laughs) we're a different continent
1: wow that's amazing it is it is so now rainfall too plays a big factor doesn't it right and so yeah we get on average and it varies
2: around the state but i get on average about 50 inches of rain but 60 to 70% of that is in the wet season, which is in the summer. Although we're talking about natural habitat here, what that means that rain in the summer is that you can't grow a lot of crops that you could grow in the mid-Atlantic, like tomatoes do not do well here in the summer. They get a fungus because it's too wet and the nighttime temperatures aren't low enough so it doesn't set fruit when the nighttime temperatures are above 70 degrees so (laughs) it's really strange because you would think that with such a long summer that
1: you would have great tomatoes but you don't and the intensity of the light is different in florida too it's much brighter right the southern part of florida is only
2: 90 miles from the tropics And so we are mostly subtropical, but in South Florida, it's considered to be close enough to the tropics to be tropical, and there's no frost down there, and so it does change things. So in the winter, our nights are not as long as if you were farther north, and the days are not as long in the summer because we're so close to the tropics. Mm-hmm. So it's different. And the birds here are different. And we do have to create our landscapes so that when they come through, the migrating birds like the cedar waxwings and stuff like that, we need a lot of berries in the winter when they come through because they will gorge themselves on the berries so that they can complete their migration. You need to keep that in mind when you're building your habitat in your yard.
1: Now, the hot temperatures can also really limit what you can grow. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it's the hot temperatures are a limiting factor. There's a lot of wildflowers that are up in the mid-Atlantic that don't occur here. But on the other hand, there's some really amazing stuff that we have that you can't grow farther north. So, you know, that part evens out in Florida, especially in the panhandle which is west of me, is considered to be a biodiversity hotspot because there's such a biodiversity here. It's really fun to explore because there's so much to see. And if you're from a different part of the country or a different part of the world, it's unique. You know there's things that we have that are endemic. There are birds that we have that are endemic, like the scrub jay, and that should be our state bird, our state bird is the mockingbird and it should be the scrub jay because it's endemic
1: so now what ecosystems do you deal with in florida i mean they're very different from other regions of the country
2: yes yeah we have we have a lot of interesting ecosystems so we've got more springs than anywhere on the planet in western northern and central florida the springs come up from our aquifers, and they are amazing. And they produce an environment that is different because that water is 72 degrees year-round. So it's cool in the summer, and it's warm in the winter. And the manatees, which is one of our interesting species, the need to stay warm in the winter so they flock to the springs to stay warm where the water is coming out of the aquifers but we also have bogs you know peat bogs we've got mangrove swamps and we've got the mangroves are amazing plants because they can live in the salt water and they can hold the soil so they actually the soil builds up in the mangroves about the same rate as the sea level rise so the mangrove swamps around the edges of our shorelines are a really interesting habitat and they attract a lot of wildlife because of where they are and the cover that they provide because they're out in the water so that a lot of the predators can't get to them because they're in the water it's just fascinating. Yeah, it's really diverse. It is. It's really diverse. And even if you don't live in Florida, you should come and visit. We have more than 100 miles of shoreline in our state parks. Our state park system is one of the best in the country and has won the gold medal award several times. And these award-winning parks, have preserved some of the real Florida, and they're the ones who actually have glommed onto the phrase, "Come and visit us and visit the real Florida and I guess they're contrasting themselves to Disneyland or something, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is not <laughs> now in the book, you talk about you know the typical person that moves down to Florida, maybe to retire or whatever. You mentioned that it's important to determine what plant community might have been in place before the neighborhood was developed. Correct. How would you go about that? Well, you'd visit your local state parks. So you would look and see
2: what they are. But also the Florida Native Plant Society has a website and they do have a study of the various ecosystems. So if you go to the website, which is fnps.org, then you can look and see, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do, but you can find the native ecosystems from the wet prairies, the longleaf pine, savannas. We've got fire-dependent landscapes. We've got, as I said, the springs. We've got various types of ecosystems here. It's very interesting. And do come and visit us even if you don't move here, because there is a lot to see and a lot to do. And there's a lot of states that don't have any national parks. We have three.
1: (laughs) Now, you talk about some lovely plants in the book. I know you mentioned sunshine mimosas. Could you talk about those for a second? Yeah, the sunshine mimosa
2: is actually a legume, so it grows in lousy soil cuz it fixes nitrogen like the beans and the other legumes. It's a an aggressive ground cover and it has little powder puff pink flower. So it looks like a Dr. Zeus pink flower. And it's very cute. And it will take over a lawn. It'll take to the mowing. It'll take traffic. I'd give up my lawn for a sunshine mimosa. You know, there's a lot of other ones that are good ground covers as well that you could be planting instead of grass.
1: You also mentioned rice button asters. They are actually widespread
2: there in the whole eastern North America. They go all the way from all the Florida up to Canada. And they have tiny little flowers and they are very prolific. I have them in my lawn. We have a freedom lawn. It doesn't get any poisons, doesn't get any fertilizers, not over irrigated. And so the asters grow into the lawn. But where they are allowed to bloom, they're just exquisite little aster flowers.
1: Now, let's say uh, I'm one of those 1000 people a day who move to Florida and I want a native garden to help birds. Could you give some suggestions of what shrubs and plants to put in the yard?
2: Well, if if you're moving to Florida, I would join the Native Plant Society because they offer field trips, they give instructional meetings, they do outreach. But my favorite bird shrub is beautyberry, which is in the mint family, and it's got incredibly iridescent purple berries. Clusters of them all along the stem. And they stay on the shrub until they're eaten in the winter. The migrating birds just come in and they eat all those berries. You can also eat them yourself. I have a recipe for beauty berry bread in my post where I talk about that. I said, I'm robbing the birds when I take this cup of (laughs) beauty (laughs) berries, but I have so many of them. They do self seed that you know i think they're okay the other shrub small tree that i would suggest is the wax myrtle and you have the relative of that farther north but the wax myrtle has uh, waxy berries and again the birds in the winter Love them. And the wax myrtle will also fix nitrogen, like the legume. It's not a legume, but it will fix nitrogen. So it'll grow in poor soil. It'll grow in wet soil, it'll grow in dry soil. It sends up suckers. You can trim it like a hedge. (laughs) So it's very flexible and it'll grow to about 20 feet or so if you let it. Or you could cut it off so that it didn't grow that tall. But it's a very easy to grow and it's a good screen. So, it offers good habitat because it's evergreen. So, that would be another good shrub for birds. Farther south, there's fire bush and other shrubs that produce berries. And the other thing that we have is we have a long hummingbird season here, too. So, there are a lot of plants that we can grow. The coral honeysuckle is a vine and it has long tubular reddish flowers that the hummingbirds like. We've got a sage, the tropical sage also has bright red tubular flowers that the hummingbirds like. And it self-seeds, it grows prolifically. So it's really, really easy to grow. And it's so interesting that you could have hummingbirds
1: for such a long period of time here. So as we start to wrap up now, could you talk maybe about creating? habitat for not just birds but also butterflies are there any other plants you would recommend
2: well of course if you are a butterfly gardener you not only need the flowers you need the larval food source so that the caterpillars have something to eat because without the caterpillars you won't have the butterflies and without the caterpillars you can't feed the birds so Doug Tallamy said that a pair of chickadees needs 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars to raise one clutch of young. So we need those native plants so that we have caterpillars. And so that's, I mean, the flowers themselves are fine, but concentrating on what the caterpillars need is going to be more productive because without the passion vines, you're not going to have the zebra long butterfly, which is our state butterfly, because it needs the passion vine for its caterpillars. It's a two-stage process.
1: Are there any host plants that you would recommend? Oh,
2: <laughs> there's tons of host plants. Of course, if you want monarchs, we need milkweed. You'd get native milkweeds so that the monarchs will migrate. So you need the natives are the best for that. Somebody said that a real butterfly gardener cheers when something eats her plants.
1: <laughs> that's a big change. It is. It Very is. That's not change. the way we were raised,
2: but it is changing. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of it. And I think that's a good thing.
1: I think, you know, the first reaction of so many in years past was just haul out the pesticides. Yeah, right. Right. But with the pesticides, then you're going to kill the butterflies.
2: Yep. And the birds. (laughs) And the birds. Yeah. So the birds and the butterflies are charismatic, attracting. So to get people interested, we need something that they like. So when they say wildlife, they might not have a positive viewpoint of what wildlife is. But when you talk about birds and butterflies, then, oh, yeah, I'd like those. And so that is one of the ways that we get
1: people to switch to native with no poisons i'd like to thank Ginny steibolt for joining us today you can find out more about Ginny and her books by going to her blog at green her new book is available at amazon.com and the barnes and noble website
0: join americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.